We're into Luke chapter 6, the next instalment in our Luke series. The title for today's talk is Brief Beatitudes and Warning Woes. It will become obvious as we, as we read the section together. We're going to read from verse 12, so Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. In these days he, that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That little opening section from verse 12, it shows us that the Lord Jesus spent a whole night in prayer and talking with his God and his Father about those he was going to bring in to partnership with him to speak and to share the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus had come to do himself. Mark is the one who tells us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus came out uh, preaching that people might repent and believe in the good news because the kingdom of God was at hand. He had come to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God and an understanding of that to humanity. Up to this point, it was something that was in a sense limited to the Jews. And Jesus began his ministry and his focus was on the Jewish people, that they would realize that the fullness of the kingdom of God was more than what they understood it to be from their reading of God's law. It was going to be ushered in through himself. Now he, he brought these 12 men, we're told here, out of the group of disciples. These are uh, popularity days for Jesus early in his, in his time of ministry. And so he's left behind, we presume, the, the carpenter's shop and he's come out to do the task that God has sent him to do, which is that he would teach and he would preach and he would speak to people about the kingdom of God. And more than that, he would uh, bring about miracles that we've read here that were amazing. 
But he spends a whole night in prayer with his father because he knows that this is not something that he can continue on his own. Now, for those of us that are Christians, this is remarkable, I think, because it tells us uh, that God cares so much about us and he has in view that he would bring a people to himself that would then be engaged in proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. <coughs> Jesus knew that there was going to be an end point for his ministry here on earth in him physically being here. He knew that he was going to go to the cross and die. He also knew that he would be raised from the dead and that gave him the hope and the comfort to continue doing what he did. The disciples had no clue at this point of that. He knew that was coming and he knew he would return to heaven and he knew that there would need to be people on earth who were utterly convinced that he was the saviour, the great Messiah figure, the promised one of God, who would be the great king over the kingdom of God for eternity. And he then says, right, you guys, you're, you're going to have the responsibility to take this on along with me. We're told that he sent the 12 out, but on another occasion he sent 72 out. And Jesus was one man. Yes, he was God. Truly God and truly man. But he was one man in one place. But God has a purpose for people who will trust him and see that Christ is the saviour and the king. Is that then we will continue uh, to share the good news of the kingdom of God. The apostles were the chosen ones for this time. And what a group they were. We don't have time to to explore uh, the variety that's in there. But you have the mention of one that Jesus had some inkling of, who was going to be a traitor. You have one who was a zealot, who was set against destroying the Romans. And at the same time, you have people in there who worked for the Romans. It was a right bunch. But it didn't matter about their background. What mattered was that they had a faith in who Jesus was, that Jesus had perceived and picked up on and he goes and he prays to his father about them and out of the bigger group of disciples and we see that in the latter section there was a bigger group of disciples these 12 were marked out with a particular purpose and in Ephesians chapter 2 we're told that the, the churches of God uh, in their testimony to what God is doing in his kingdom is founded on the on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and those are New Testament prophets. So, so these men have been brought in to be partners with Jesus in the spread of the good news of the kingdom of God. Foundational stuff. We have a same calling, not to apostleship, because that was for a particular period of time, but we have a calling to come and to be partners. This is my point, to be partners with Jesus. Yes, he's ascended to glory, but he calls us to partnership with him that we might proclaim the glory of the kingdom of God. What that means for eternity and what it means for Christian service now. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 into chapter 6, he speaks about working together with him, with God. Paul was one of those 
later apostles that was appointed, but he was one who, working with his companions, realized that he had been brought in to salvation so that he then might share that with others, working together with God. That's what God wants for us. The great creator who made everything recreates in sinners who are dead new life so then that their hearts might be after his and that they would then live in partnership with him to declare the glory of who he is and his eternal kingdom. That's mind-blowing. That God would think of us in that way. Let's move on to that little section after that then, verse 17. <clears throat> Leave you to think on what it means to be called into partnership with God. From 17 onwards, we're told that Jesus came down that mountain with the 12 that he had appointed. And he came to a bigger group that were there gathered. It says there was a great crowd of his disciples. Do you notice that? So there was this bigger group of people who were saying, uh, we're following this man because his teaching is something really, really special. That was how it was 2,000 years ago in, in Judea and, and Galilee. That there would have been Jewish teachers, rabbis, who would have had a particular way of interpreting the Old Testament and people would have gone after them as disciples because they liked the way that they understood the things of God through those rabbis. But here was Jesus and he brought something entirely fresh. And there was this big group, great crowd of disciples. But in addition to that, we're told that there was a great multitude of people from a wider geographical area. As I said before, these were the popularity days for Jesus. Jesus was eventually going to be taken and crucified, rejected, with nobody with him. But here in the early days when he comes and he brings something fresh and new, which hasn't been seen for, for years, he's attractive. The Jews hadn't experienced a, a prophet, uh, a man of God, somebody who spoke on behalf of God for over 400 years. During that period of time, the nation of the Jews had just gone through such turmoil and now they were under the oppression, the rule of Rome. And things were just not what they understood God had said it should be. 400 years of silence from God. And here comes one who was from God. Do you remember in John chapter 3, um, Nicodemus was one of the teachers, if not the greatest teacher in, uh, in Israel at the time, uh, in Jerusalem. He says, we know that you are a man from God. Because nobody can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. So there was a recognition early in Jesus' ministry that he was sent from God, a man of God. And he was known by some as a prophet. So he comes and he's speaking the things of God in a way that hasn't been heard for half a, half a millennium. But more than that, we're told that he comes and he does things that haven't been seen for nearly 850 years. Elisha was the last of the, the prophets that, there were two of them, Elijah and Elisha, two consecutive prophets who were enabled by God to do things of a miraculous nature 
for people and in circumstances, and we read about them uh, in the Old Testament. It had been 850 years since that had happened. And Jesus comes, speaking the word of God, a man of God, perceived to be by some a prophet, or a remarkable rabbi. But in addition to that, he comes, and the text here says he healed them all. It seems as though people were clamoring to get near. And he's able to heal on a scale that has never been seen before. I want you to, to notice, please, what it is that, that draws the people to Jesus. I've said what I think it is, but it states it here in the text in verse 18. It says that the people came from, from all around. Now, I should say this is from, if we take Jerusalem or the lower reaches of Judea up to the coastlands of Tyre and Sidon, you're looking at uh, over 100 miles, probably 120 miles of a distance. So not sure where this incident takes place. But you're going to have had people travelling on foot from those extremities to come and to flock to Jesus. Why would you take such a dangerous long journey to find one man? And there's no gathering um, or Google Maps type thing to tell you where he's at or... Um, Facebook calling you to it this is word of mouth and people travel saying I'm after Jesus, just imagine it where is he? and they come and they gather it just shows you the popularity of someone who speaks the word of God and does miracles look, look at verse 18 it says those who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases there was his astounding fresh teaching and there was also this healing of the diseases it says that people sought to touch him see you almost get the sense that uh, if people could touch him and it does say it really then power went out from him as people reached out by faith to touch this this man who could heal and there was power came out from him and healed them all so he came with the message of god and he came with the miracles that attested to him being sent from God. But it also says, and it's a distinctive phrase there in verse 18, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. <clears throat> That's distinctive from the diseases, the sicknesses and the illnesses. And we see that Jesus is able to heal, um, even when it's humanly impossible to consider it, Jesus uh, is able to heal. But there's trouble in here too. And it's the troubling of spirit. So you have this man sent from God. Who has a teaching from God. Which people just love to come and listen to. Accompanied by the reality that he can heal. Humanly impossible diseases and sicknesses to heal. And he comes <coughs> to bring stability and peace. To those who have psychological trouble. So he captivated large audiences with insights <clears throat> into the way God's kingdom works and how it contrasts with the ideological systems of our world. We're going to come on to that in the Beatitudes and the Woes. He brought physical healing and restoration for those who were incurable, even raising people from the dead. And he had the power to bring settled peace to those who had troubles 
The word is annoyance. They were annoyed. And here it's related to demonic activity. Very quickly, let me go off and come back. We live in a world that is not just physical and tangible. We know it ourselves, in ourselves, if we will be honest with ourselves, that we are spirit beings too. There is more to me than just flesh and bone. And there is more to you than just flesh and bone. There is something spiritual that we connect on a level at. It shows us that there is something else. It's a reflection of what exists in this creation. That there is a God who is spirit. And that there is a spiritual realm which is beyond the visible and the tangible. But it's real. And that affects us. Satan, who stood up against God and said he could be greater than God. The origin of sin there. An angel created who had the effrontery to think he could be bigger than God. He was cast out of heaven along with others with him because of that. And he has set himself to destroy that which God has made perfect ever since. And that includes us. So no wonder it's annoying. It's troubling. And the things of life can come at us so hard sometimes. They were wondering, how on earth is this even possible? And we can see that we're part of the problem too because of the sinfulness that is in each of us and in this sinful system. But when we realize that the, this Satan, this adversary of God, and the demonic forces that are set against God is also at work, then it's no wonder this work is the mess it's in. And the world needs a saviour. 2,000 years ago, it's the same as it is now. And people need to hear about God. They want the healing in their experience and in their lives that is not found in the things of humanity. And they're looking for that settled peace. The settling of trouble and annoyance. That comes and affects the mind. That's related to everything that goes on in the unseen realm. To a troubled, hurting and unjust world. 2,000 years ago, Jesus. At this point anyway. People saw as the only satisfying answer. He is the only answer. It's God himself who's come to be with us. To share in the mess of this world that we contribute to. He has come to rescue us. To bring to us an understanding of who God is. To bring to us the healing that we so long for. And to bring the settled peace that we can't have in any of the ideologies of the world. We can see that the ethical and political systems of our world just fail time after time after time after time. It's history. We can't fix it ourselves. Despite advances in medicine and technology, we still suffer with incurable diseases. We can't fix everything. We can't. And the more research is done, the more we realise that we are struggling to deal 
with the breakdown of our own bodies and the fabric of human society. And research would show that our generations that are present existing, and particularly a generation just under mine that's coming up, are among the most psychologically troubled in history. It's not getting any better, it's getting worse. And Jesus is the answer. But yet we live in a society, particularly in the West, that is so consumed with our own self-sufficiency that we're not prepared to come and make a journey to listen to a man by the name of Jesus who has the answer and himself is the answer. We who are Christians have a responsibility to show him to others to be the answer to all that is broken in our world. You know, Jesus' uh, teaching and healing ministry was a, was a pointer forwards. We know this because we can read the Bible and we can see what comes next. But at this time, Jesus was doing things that were pointing forward to God's intentions for this world that would culminate in his sacrifice at the cross. He'd come to declare God and to bring healing and peace. And the only way that that could last was by God himself coming and dealing with the problem of sin at its source, at the root problem. Jesus here is dealing with the symptoms. Do you see it? The, the, the consequences of us being part of a broken sinful system where we're, we're all sinners ourselves. Jesus comes and yes, he's dealing with symptoms here, but he has come that he might deal with the source, the root cause of it, if we can put it that way, which is sin itself. To defeat Satan, the one who has set himself against God and brought all of this to us in our world order. We're guilty before God of going after the things that take us away from God. The Bible makes that clear. But rather than leave us to our own devices, God himself has come in the person of Jesus. Not to deal with symptoms, but to deal with the root cause. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, just before Paul says, uh, working in partnership with God, we speak to people. He was reminded that, of the verse, and he, he was the one who wrote it. It says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse tells us that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, in all of his sinless perfection, was not just coming to deal with symptoms, but was going to deal with the source, root problem, which was sin itself and God's just wrath against it by himself sacrificing himself to God at the cross. And the Bible language tells us that on him was laid all of our sin. We're supposed to use our minds and envisage this weight of all that is horrific about this world being landed on Jesus and then God's wrath bursting on him as a consequence. This is God. 
He's come to deal with the root cause, sin itself, and offer forgiveness of sins to those who will trust that Jesus has died on the cross. To suffer God's wrath against sin. To protect then those who would have faith in him and know the forgiveness of sins, sins removed. That's the promise of scripture. Sin dealt with and its penalty dealt with once and for all. Jesus stands alone. He has no, no way like any other religious leader who comes and tries to address the symptoms of the mess of this world. Jesus is the only one who has come and has dealt with the root cause. And we can know it ourselves. Victory over sin in our lives. He then moves on to speak um, brief beatitudes and then warning woes. I think it's just Jesus using the opportunity as he's dealing with the symptoms of sin with people to show people like us and like them back then how this world has got everything upside down and yes we might well be in a mess but there is a hope to be found in him it is in him and we'll see why there's a hope to be found in him that transforms whatever would come at us in this life because we know that in Christ Jesus sin has been defeated and will be forever and the glorious eternal kingdom of God, where sin will have no part, is for those who exercise that trusting faith in him. Jesus here employs a style that the Jewish audience would have been well aware of. But I say Jewish audience predominantly, but those from Tyre and Sidon would have been non-Jews, would have been Gentiles. You know, just after Jesus had, had died and been raised from the dead and had gone back to heaven, the, the early Christians were Jews and they really struggled to understand that God's purposes for his glorious kingdom included the Gentiles and God had to bring them into that understanding over time. But here we have a little hint of it, that Jesus has come to be the saviour of the world. That's Luke's whole reason for writing. Look at it throughout Luke's gospel. He wants to tell us time and time again that Jesus is the saviour of the world, everybody. People flocked, Jews and Gentiles to hear him. But Jesus employs here something that, uh, in a way of speaking, uh, a system of speaking that would have been memorable and known particularly to the Jews. You'll notice that there are four blesseds and then there are four woes. Uh, so he gives the positives and then he gives the negatives in the sense, if I can say it that way, Things that can be easily implanted in the mind. I do believe this is a different incident uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And I would go with commentators who have called this the Sermon on the Plain. Not the airplane, on the flat um, plain land somewhere. So you've got Jesus coming and speaking this. And he, he adopts something that we see in the Old Testament. Particularly in Deuteronomy 28 when Moses is reminding God's people back then, Israel, of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with him. Moses outlines on God's behalf, if you do this, you will know this blessing. If you honour the terms of my covenant, you will know my blessing. If you reject the terms of my covenant, then you'll suffer for the consequences of it. So maybe in their minds, 
those who would have known a little bit about their, their Bibles in this day would have heard echoes of Deuteronomy 28 where God had made promises to those who would honour him in their lives that they would know blessing. And also the warnings that those who did not honour him with their lives would suffer the consequences or the curses as they're called back in Deuteronomy 28. A covenant is a form of a contract that cannot be broken by the failure of one party to abide by the terms of that contract. Covenants usually are the product of love with the other person's benefit in view. Our God is a God of covenant. He was a God of covenant with Abraham, God of covenant with Noah, a God of covenant even in the Garden of Eden, I believe. A God of covenant with the people that he had brought to himself, that nation, Israel. But he had terms for the covenant. And God knew full well that we as sinners, and they as sinners, would not be able to keep the terms of the covenant. But that doesn't mean that the covenant was broken. Covenant can't. God's love and his desire to bless those who are his continues. So here is Jesus who later in the upper room before he would allow himself to be taken and crucified, sat with his disciples and said, look, we're celebrating the Passover here, but I'm going to take this bread. And he broke bread and said, this is my body given for you. They must have been looking at him, wondering what on earth is he talking about. Then he takes a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He'd come to bring in something new, a new covenant, a new loving covenant. contract relationship between God and the people who will trust him and honour and delight in honouring the terms of his covenant. So he, he adopts that and we're not going to spend much on working our way through the details here but look at how he summarises blessedness and woe. What struck me this week is something that hasn't before That when Jesus is saying this, he's not just instructing, he's actually revealing his heart. I think that's the way we have to read it. Jesus is just full. As he's looking out over the group of disciples, and notice it says he lifted up his eyes on the disciples. He he looks at them, and his heart is overwhelmed. He says, you're blessed, even if you're poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. He's speaking about material poverty, yes, but he's also speaking of poverty towards God, recognition in the heart of of people that they have nothing they can bring to God. They fail all the time, but God will work for them. You can see that. Blessed are you who are hungry now. It's just an expression of, you're so well off. You who might be suffering with hunger now, And you have this desire to know more of God. Because you will be satisfied. I've said recently that Christianity is is about delayed gratification. It's seeing that our best life is yet to come. That even though we might be part of a world system that that is broken and full of inequality... As it was here. There were people who were poor. God never intended that for his people. There were people who were hungry. He never intended that for his people. Blessed are you who weep now. People who were. That's weeping. Loud wailing. 
Maybe you've been in the company of somebody who just wails because of the circumstances that come into their lives. You know the heartbreak that produces that sort of response. Jesus says, blessed are you, if that's your experience now, for you shall laugh. Look, there's something greater that's coming. And blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. And then the key phrase in the whole lot on account of the Son of Man. You know why that's the key phrase? Because Jesus is saying, you line up with me, the Son of Man. Now that has echoes for a Jewish person of something that was written by, the Daniel, by Daniel the prophet about the, the Son of Man in all of his glory being the Son of God who would be the one to rule over God's kingdom for eternity. So he says, you line up with me in this world that actually is going to show that it doesn't want to have anything to do with me because it's against God's things. He says, blessed are you. You're so well off if you will go through that experience in this life, knowing that what is to come is far better. Look at verse 23. He says, when you suffer that sort of situation, if you're part of this covenant relationship with me and you are prepared to live it out, and you go through this hatred, exclusion, reviling and spurning. Rejoice in that day. That's not enough, Jesus says. Leap for joy. When's the last time you leapt for joy? The sense of it is skipping down the road. Not out of some sort of, ah, I was just uh, hated then, so I'm going to just skip it off. It's not that sort of thing. It's realising that this is just for the now, but something greater is coming. I got abuse from a driver the other day. I still do not think that I did anything to rile him. Seriously, I, I know you know my driving, but I do not know what it was that I've done. And I think it was because I had a fish symbol in the back of my car. It was just one of those moments where you're, you're then for the rest of the day thinking, and Jesus says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Pull the car over and go for a leap. That's what Jesus is getting at. He says, look, it's only for now. You trust me for what is to come. I want you to get this thing that has struck me so hard. Is Jesus just full of the joy of what it is for the people who are prepared to live this life for him. And then the absolute pain that he has when he speaks of the woes. Woe is not just a pronouncement. It's not like, cursed are you because of this. It's not the sense of it at all. It's Jesus exclaiming with grief. Woe to you who are rich. You're so consumed with this life at the expense of everything else and you'll exploit others just to have your riches. I'm so full of grief for you because you're full now. And you think that's all it is. You're you're going to know what hunger really is like in the day to come. My heart is just in agony for you, is the sense of it. Because you're laughing, and the sense of it is that they're laughing at people who are disadvantaged. Because you shall mourn and weep. And my heart is just so pained for you, because you're living this life in such a way that you would just have people say the best things about you all the time. That's not the life that Jesus wants us to live. 
It might be attractive in the short term. It might be what the world says is the way we should live. But the world is set against the things of God. And if we're going to live with the Son of Man and identify with him and go his way, then this life is going to be hard. And there are things that are going to come at us. And we're not immune to them. And it's going to come and it's going to be tough. But Jesus is saying, blessed are you. Coming to Christ. The one who has come to deal with the root problem of sin. Can help us then as we live this life experiencing the symptoms of that sin. And he says, you come and live your life along with me. And although it might be a thing of poverty, of hunger, of exclusion. You're going to know the absolute delight that it is to be a part of the kingdom of God for eternity. Just to finish. Our God did not come with all of his riches. With all that he needed to be satisfied. And to live in such a way that everybody would speak well of him. Jesus came that he might experience poverty and hunger and mourning and reviling. That's our God. He's come to experience what we experience. Because as Hebrews verse 12, chapter 12 verse 2 says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. He knew that there was a greater day coming for him. And it involved us, those he calls to himself, to partner with him in the sharing of the news of this kingdom. Let's do it together. Let's pray.